0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Now, today on the show, we are actually reposting a conversation that we had last week over on our Off the Couch podcast channel. The reason we are running this again is that on the outside chance that you are not already subscribed to and listening to every single episode of Off the Couch, well, we really want you to hear this episode even if you have not run a single day in your life, which actually is highly doubtful since the vast majority of us at least used to run when we were little kids running around slamming into furniture and stuff. Anyway, We think this is a really interesting and really important conversation. And what I've found in our conversations with some of our people here at Blister is that this is really serving as a catalyst and as an inspiration to getting a lot of us to think about how we might very specifically find things and find ways that we can contribute in our own individual communities to not replicate the work of judge Craig Mitchell but certainly to do something that we might say could be inspired by some of the work that you'll be hearing about in my conversation here with Judge Craig Mitchell. The other thing I want to say here, maybe some of you have already heard of the Skid Row Running Club, and maybe some of you have actually already watched the film called The Skid Row Marathon. If you have not seen this film, I implore you, please go watch it You can find it either for free or for just a couple of dollars online. And everybody listening to this podcast, I urge you to go see this film. Now, even if you already are aware of the Skid Row Running Club, you've already seen the Skid Row Marathon film, Judge Mitchell and I talk about in this conversation, I think a really important thing for all of us to have a better understanding of, it is this issue of mandatory minimum sentences and why this is a matter of our judicial system that is in significant need of reevaluation and revision. Judge Mitchell is one of the best possible people to be talking about this given his lengthy experience. And so it is a real honor and a real privilege to have him here weighing in and informing us on this topic. And on another related issue that a lot of us are thinking about right now, the judge has a lot of things to say with respect to police officers and police training, yet another reason why we wanted to run this conversation again and just make sure that none of you miss this. I think the judge has a very important perspective on this because he has a wealth of experience on this issue. And finally, before we get started here, the last thing I want to say is just, I am extremely proud of some of the conversations we've been having over on our Off the Couch podcast platform. When we had the idea for Off the Couch, one of the fundamental principles behind it was that we hoped that it might be a show that would definitely appeal to hardcore people who are passionate runners and have loved it for a long time. But frankly, we also kind of like the idea that it would also be a show for people who maybe hate running, sometimes love it, sometimes hate it, but it isn't a show where we think you have had to have already drank the running Kool-Aid or whatever one does. Here, I'm probably biased because I've really enjoyed the vast, vast majority of all of our episodes over on Off The Couch, but even if you wanted to just get started with some that I would recommend, episode 54 where Brendan Leonard and I had a fantastic conversation with Faith E. Briggs please check that one out the next episode, episode 55, Brendan and I talk to Sean Martin, who is just an absolutely remarkable guy, and Sean is able to give us his perspective on things that are happening with the Navajo Nation and the Navajo approach to coaching and community and, yes, running And then actually tomorrow, which is Tuesday, July 13th, we're posting another conversation that I think many of you will find very interesting. It's a conversation that I just had with Addie Bracey, who is a very strong runner, but she is also doing a lot of work in the world of sport and performance psychology. And some of the things that Addie and I are talking about in this conversation definitely have a much broader application beyond the world of long distance running. So you should check that out. And Addie is the co-founder of an organization called OutRun. And I'd love for you all to hear her talk about that, because I think that also will likely inspire some thoughts about how we can make every community that we are a part of more inclusive. That's kind of the broad picture and sort of gives you a bit of a sense of some of the conversations that we've been having over on Off the Couch. But for now, we are extremely happy to put in front of you here the conversation that I had with Judge Craig Mitchell about the Skid Row Running Club that he started, because again... We think that this is going to inspire a number of you to have new thoughts about what you might be able to be doing in your particular community. We also get the judge's take on some incredibly important issues like police reform and this issue of mandatory minimum sentences. And so with that, it is very much our honor to present this conversation that I recently had with Judge Craig Mitchell. Well, Judge, how are you today, and where are you today?
1: I'm doing fine, and I am in downtown Los Angeles at uh, the Criminal Courts Building, which is the largest criminal courts building in the United States.
0: I hope it's okay if I say, I mean, you're currently in your chambers, correct? I am. Just back from a run, and I shall say, uh, looking quite fit in your running tank top there and the like, so... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> you you hope there are some benefits from uh, all the miles you log. And I think that's one of them.
0: Let's kind of start there. I'd love to hear more about your own relationship with running and how you got running and when you started running.
1: Uh, I started running about 25 years ago uh, when I was a new prosecutor in the district attorney's office here in Los Angeles. My boss asked me to join the district attorney's team to participate in a law enforcement run uh, known as Baker to Vegas. It attracts probably 200, 250 law enforcement teams from all around the world. And I did not like running, but I did not want to thwart my career early on by telling my boss no.
0: (laughs) Smart man.
1: Okay, so I said, sure, I'll give it a try. And interestingly enough, I sort of took to it.
0: Now, what year is this? Uh, 1993. So what was life like prior to 1993? Were you involved in other athletics?
1: I would say I always, you know, had a decent level of fitness, a fair amount of bike riding, hiking.
0: Okay. But 1993, a runner is born. Is that fair? (laughs) I've never phrased it that way, but I think it's fair. So you are working in law, you are getting into running, and then tell us a little bit about that time from 93 over the next five to 10 years. What does your work and life look like?
1: I mean, during that period of time, I was a prosecutor in the district attorney's office here in Los Angeles. I had a couple friends that I would run with regularly at lunch. Uh, we just run straight out of the courthouse and, and head east. I probably was knocking off, I don't know, two to three marathons a year at that point in time and, and, and prosecuting very serious cases. Uh, towards the latter half of my career, I prosecuted cases that largely carried a life sentence. So we're talking you know multiple sexual assault victims, murder, attempt murder, uh, things of that nature. And so running was a real mental release for me, you know, to be able to handle that type of subject matter and keep one's perspective and and not get overwhelmed at, you know, the content uh, behind those cases, running was crucial.
0: But through that time then, I mean, is your own own training as a runner, mileage as a runner, frequency, is that building? Is it kind of ebbing and flowing in that like 1993 window to the present?
1: To be quite honest, I I think almost from the get go, I jumped in with both feet. And so probably since 1993, 94, I run five to six days a week. I log 50 plus miles a week. And that's been real constant.
0: When did running go from being something that you were doing for your own mental health, to being something that you thought, you know, this could actually be a good sort of thing to try to organize and bring other folks into this running lifestyle?
1: Well, about nine years ago, uh, I had a gentleman come back into my courtroom who I had sent to state prison, and he had paroled to Skid Row to the midnight mission. And for some reason, even though I sent him to prison, he decided he liked me and he invited me to come down to the Midnight Mission and meet the people who were involved in his recovery. Larry Adamson, the president of the mission at the time, asked me if there was something that I could do to contribute to their program. And at that point in time, all of my three children were either in law school or graduate school, and so my paycheck was largely spoken for due to their tuition, but I had some time on my hands. My kids were out of the house, and so I, Obviously, had many years of running under my belt at that point, and I knew the benefits that it brought to my own mental and physical health, and so I offered to start a running club uh, at the Midnight Mission.
0: Talk a little bit about that. I mean, first of all, for people who might not know, can you say a little more about the Midnight Mission in general?
1: The Midnight Mission has been servicing the homeless community, the addicted community, for over a hundred years and it is one of three major missions in skid row you've got the midnight mission the los angeles mission and the union rescue mission midnight mission has 300 people who live on site 200 men and 100 women pretty much when you end up on skid row you have nowhere else to go and if you're going to commit to their program you're going to commit to a 12-step recovery program You're going to go to multiple meetings every day. You're going to have a case manager. You're going to have a job assigned to you. It is really a pretty comprehensive program to try and piece back together a a person's life that has come apart.
0: And Judge, it might actually also be helpful to have you just say a word about skid row? Because I'm not sure that everybody is totally familiar with where that term comes from or or what, in fact, we mean when we're talking about skid row. Well,
1: skid row is a term that was originally coined up in the Northwest. Skid row was at the bottom of a mountain where they slid logs before they were cut down into lumber and shipped around the United States to build this country. But it also was an area where people who were, you know, down on their luck, maybe suffering from alcoholism at the time, etc., cetera, where they congregated. And, and that term ended up then applying to about, I would say a 20 square block area, uh, just south east of downtown Los Angeles. Where today, on any given night, you have 15,000 people living on the street. In tents, sleeping on the sidewalk. Uh, There was a lot of crime there. There's heavy drug use. It's a pretty grim area.
0: Coming back to the Midnight Mission Running Club that you founded, when did you found that club?
1: Um, Probably pretty much in the middle of 2011.
0: 2011. So we've
1: we've been up and running uh, almost nine years now.
0: Talk a little bit about those nine years. How has it gone? What have you learned along the way? How has it evolved?
1: You know, we started very humbly. I initially showed up in the afternoons. You know, two to three guys would turn out to run with me. Turned out that... A lot of their recovery, a lot of their AA and NA meetings happened late afternoon, early evening. So the afternoon hours didn't work anymore. Started to meet at 5.30 in the morning. And so we increased turnout at that point. Early on in the program, um, a critical component uh, of our program is to take our runners overseas once a year to run in an international marathon. So our first trip was to Ghana in West Africa. And we ran the Accra International Marathon. And we just brought four runners to that venue. And the following year, uh, we upped it and it became more popular. We took 25 runners to run in Rome. Uh, the following year, the numbers increased even uh, more, and we had 44 runners that ran the Jerusalem Marathon. And every year we, we pick a different international destination. We've run in Da Nang in Vietnam. We have run in Berlin. I've run in London. Uh, we have run this past year. We ran in Ecuador and in the Galapagos. And, you know, from those just initial runs where I had two to three runners. Now on a good day, we'll have 40. And there's an active membership of the club of about 70 to 100 at any given point in time. That number doesn't show up for every run because some of them work on a particular day. But uh, the cr- the club has really grown over the last nine years.
0: Now, who are the members of this club?
1: Essentially, they fall into two categories. Uh, you have the people who are in recovery, and they comprise about two-thirds of our members, And they come from the missions downtown. And the other third are what I would term mentors, people in the greater community who have heard about the program, who want to contribute uh, to helping the people who are in recovery do good things with their lives. And that's the combination that makes up our club.
0: And I've got to ask, I mean, when you're talking about going to Rome and Ghana and the Galapagos Island, how is this being funded?
1: <laughs> well, the first few trips, I, I shudder to think at how much I reached into my own pocket, and a couple of friends of mine did the same. About three or four people made those trips possible for everyone. When the movie Skid Row Marathon was released, uh, we formed a 501c3 nonprofit. And when the word got out of what uh, we were doing here in Los Angeles, you know, people began to step up. Uh, and and made contributions. And, you know, a, a week doesn't go by that I don't get a contribution from somewhere, somewhere around the world who saw the movie and wanted to make sure that this program continued to be viable.
0: Talk a little bit about the decision to have all of these international locations to go run, right? I mean, you could organize one run a year in LA or something like that. So what was the thinking there about having these like incredibly interesting destinations?
1: Well, it's sort of twofold. Number one, I, in raising my own children, knew how important going around the world with my own children was in terms of Uh, adding a completely new dimension to our relationship. You know, when you travel overseas, you go to a country where folks don't speak your language, where you're just seeing things that amaze you at every turn, it brings you closer to one another. And I wanted to foster that amongst the runners in our running program. And the second component has to do with the fact that, you know, I can tell somebody that I value them. I can tell somebody that I love them. But when you're ready to put down three to $4,000 per person and give them an experience that they will cherish for the rest of their life, and many of them are getting on an airplane for the first time and staying in a four-star hotel, that communicates how much you value the other person far more than any words could ever do. And that's why
0: we do it. I was kind of curious, I mean, fostering that sense of community and that show of care makes perfect sense. I wondered a little if some of this was just an incredibly compelling incentive.
1: It is an incentive for our members to maintain their sobriety. You know, I absolutely agree with you. Um, They know that if they maintain their sobriety and they show up consistently for runs, their trip will be funded. You know, the encouraging thing is that those who participate in the running program uh, have a greater success rate than those who do not. And there's no great mystery as to why.
0: Help me understand this. Is there a lottery process for this of who gets to go? Or it's literally a like you show up a certain number of times in a year, you maintain sobriety and you are going for sure, on this trip? It is the latter. We have never turned anyone away. It's remarkable.
1: It is, and and it's just fun because as soon as we get back from one trip, of course, everybody's asking, you know, Judge, where are we going next year? And then the board decides where we're going next year, and, you know, they jump on the computers at the mission and check out the destination, and the excitement just builds all year long.
0: So now I need to ask you for a bit of clarification. We have been talking about the Midnight Mission Running Club. Is there any relationship between that and the Skid Row Running Club?
1: Well, we began at the Midnight Mission, and and during the evolution of this running program, uh, it it has acquired several names. Um, You know, for the bulk of its existence and once we became our own entity it is the skid row running club
0: so that's the relation it's the same folks same groups of people same international trip we're talking about it could be called uh, a couple different things
1: because originally we just hold our runners from the midnight mission but the the program has expanded and then we now pull our runners from all three missions and we actually on occasion will get someone who will see us running time after time and who's living in a tent or living on the street and they'll start running with us so it's you know it's larger than the midnight mission and we are a separate entity we carry our own insurance you know all those good things
0: You've just said well that it's kind of an evolving number in the club. But roughly, what kind of numbers are we talking about today?
1: Well, we're going to run tomorrow morning at 5.30, and I would expect 30 to 40 runners to be out there. Um, I expect, well, we've already, we're hopefully headed to Burma on November 24th to run the Bagan International Marathon. I expect to have close to 40 people on board the plane in November.
0: So Burma this year.
1: It's Burma. (laughs) You know, when we go to places like that, we go for at least two weeks. Okay, this is not just get on a plane, run the marathon and come back. You know, when we went to Israel, we also included Jordan because I wanted them to see Petra. We went to a Syrian refugee camp in Jordan. So You know, when we go to Burma, we'll go to a lot of the different places there. I want them to have as full of experience at any given locale as possible.
0: I'm sure there's a number of remarkable people that you've gotten to know over the years. Would you mind if I asked you to single out a particular person or, or talk a little bit about a particular story just to help give us a better picture of the trajectory of somebody who found their way into the running club and what they're up to today
1: well I mean so many names come to mind uh, you know close to the top of the list would be a young man Brian uh, Brian grew up here in Los Angeles his mother was addicted to crack cocaine when he was born and so he suffered the residual effects of that did not do well in school uh i ended up meeting him down on skid row and very shortly thereafter you know he comes up and he says well i need to talk to you about something you know i'm 23 years of age and i don't know how to read and for a good portion of my life i've been homeless and you know fast forward to today We got Brian into a literacy program. I actually ended up reading books with Brian. And every evening I would give him a call and quiz him on the chapters that I had assigned and he has IT skills and through one of our mentors who became aware of Brian and his IT aptitude and skills ended up getting hired by a very large corporation here in downtown Los Angeles. So he is no longer homeless, he has a great job, and he has been running with us consistently for the last six years. Another man that comes to mind would be Mario. Mario has suffered with addiction for years and years, grew up in a very abusive home situation. His father was an alcoholic. He ended up homeless, he ended up on drugs, he's been running with us, and Mario probably was close to... 275, really overweight, completely out of shape, always the last guy to come in on any run. Since he's been in the running club, he is enrolled at West LA Community College. He is now working in the film industry and living independently in his own apartment. And in August, he and two of our other members will be doing their first half Ironman. Okay. I mean, there's just person after person after person of a similar story. Most of, most of the runners, you know, I, I hate to say it, they, they have criminal records, okay? You know, you end up using drugs and to support that habit and, you know, it likely are it, oftentimes it, it leads to criminal behavior. And so, you know, not only are the guys separating themselves from their addiction, but they're also transforming their lives in terms of becoming now law-abiding citizens, which obviously pleases me.
0: Tell us a little bit about, I guess we'll call it your day job, today. What kind of work are you doing? What kind of cases are you seeing these days?
1: Well, during the pandemic, the courts have really had to just... Sort of take a pause we are doing arraignments sentencing and preliminary hearings um this coming monday the 6th we will assume a full calendar jury trials everything and so you know prior to the pandemic i operate a felony trial court and i've been doing it long enough that uh most of the cases that get sent to me are serious i don't do car theft or you know Small drug offenses. You know, I, I don't do those kind of things. I, I do the serious stuff. And, you know, that, that's what my day job consists of.
0: I've got to ask, because you're the right person to ask, along those lines, anything that we should clearly know from your point of view about, I mean, obviously these days we're hearing a lot about and thinking a lot about the legal system, the criminal system. So I guess I would ask you from your point of view, the cases you're seeing and the rest, anything, the top one or two things that the average lay person like me should understand, like, are you in general pleased with how the system is operating these days? Maybe your one or two biggest frustrations, anything along those lines to help us better understand.
1: One of my big frustrations is has to do with mandatory sentences. In Skid Row Marathon, one of the opening scenes in that movie, um, I'm sentencing a young man, Davon Williams, to 70 plus years to life. And that was the absolute minimum sentence that I could impose on him. And he involved himself in a gang-related shooting between himself, two of his fellow gang members, and three detectives. Now, over 70 bullets were exchanged between the parties. Nobody gets hit. Davon Williams actually didn't fire a single shot. As soon as he jumped out of the car, he threw his gun to the gutter and ran. But because he was involved in an altercation with three law enforcement officers where bullets were exchanged, he's charged with three counts of attempted murder. Principal armed, it means one of his fellow gang members was armed. And... It was gang related. And so you start adding up the terms that must be imposed for that type of crime, you end up with 70 plus years. I have a hard time with that because if you kill somebody, second degree murder, you get 15 years. If you do it premeditated, you get 25 years. And so here you have a crime where nobody gets hurt, mandatory 70 plus year sentence, you kill somebody, you get less than half or a third of that it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. There are people who do bad things but are redeemable. You know, with a certain infusion of guidance, uh, some degree of punishment, that person can ultimately make a contribution to the larger community. Now, there are some people who are hell-bent on hurting other people any opportunity they get. I don't think our system is very good at times at delineating between those two types of people.
0: What, what can be done? What would you recommend?
1: I think we need to really revisit, and it's happening, okay, but we need to continue to revisit what sentences we impose. We also have to, I think, create a system where if a person ends up with a lengthy state prison term. They have to understand that if they genuinely, and I emphasize the word genuinely, genuinely redefine themselves, transform themselves, most folks should be able to work their way out of prison eventually. We have to create mechanisms to enable them to do that.
0: And speaking of those mechanisms, is that to say those mechanisms don't currently exist Or we need to just really tweak the current mechanisms to get us there. How far away are we from the world you're describing? It is. (laughs) And this is
1: where the systemic institutionalized racism rears its ugly head. Um, You know, who makes the ultimate call when a person uh, goes up in front of the parole board? You know, it's two to three commissioners on the parole board. And, you know, I've sat through enough parole hearings to appreciate the fact that there are a lot of people who are sitting as parole commissioners who have such built-in hostility and animosity to anyone who is incarcerated, that they are very unlikely to see the transformation that may have occurred in a person. Not saying that doesn't happen. I've met commissioners who you know, break the mold. But all too often, that is not the case.
0: Sounds like we might need to get some of those commissioners on some of the Skid Row Running Club morning runs. (laughs) I think it might change their perspectives dramatically. I mean, the, the beautiful
1: thing about you know, another group that falls into the mentor class in the Skid Row Running Club, we have police officers. We have about six police officers from the central division who run with us regularly, and talk about, you know, you got police officers running with convicted murderers who are now released, and for them to interact, it, I mean, radically challenges and changes their perspectives on one another.
0: I think we've all been thinking a whole lot about the police and police relationships with communities. You would know this better than I, but I I keep coming back to that motto, to protect and serve. And I looked this up, and if I have this right, I was like, is this actually a national motto of like... All police departments everywhere. And I think it's actually the L.A. police department that first had that as the kind of official motto. And it, and it isn't.
1: I would concur. It's on, it's on the side of every police car in Los Angeles.
0: And I just keep thinking about that, you know, as this dynamic has been so problematic And it was just like, man, how do we get back to a system where if I'm thinking of going into the police force, I'm going in first and foremost because I am there to protect and serve the community that I am a part of. And I was just like, man, if every person who was an active police officer was operating
1: was true to that motto, then yeah, then George Floyd would have never died.
0: George Floyd would have never died, and it would be much easier for communities everywhere to, in fact, appreciate the police. They are there to help. They are there to serve. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Like, how have we gotten—and you've just pointed out there are a number of officers who I think are living up to that motto— but how do we get back to or create a culture that where that is the absolute norm?
1: Well, you know, I think it really requires that we understand, you know, the the education and maturation that goes into any individual. You know, if, if a person grows up in a home where there is prejudice and racism, you know, and maybe a doesn't have a educational background where there are a lot of positive experiences with people outside of your own ethnicity or background, to think that somehow you put a person in a police uniform and put a badge on and tell them you're supposed to protect and serve, it is not going to erase the experiential you know, deposits that define that person's thought processes. I think we need to do a much much better job of figuring out where is a person really coming from before they apply to become a police officer. You know, we're in a situation what I mean, what do you need to become an LAPD cop? You need to be what? 20 years of age and you need to have finished high school, okay? I you know, in terms of cultural, ethnic, religious, you know, gender sensitivity, I mean, come on, that doesn't happen in most high school curriculums and 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 yet we expect police officers to engage with people that are very different from their own backgrounds in a
0: sensitive manner and <laughs> we're kidding ourselves we're setting people up in that sense we're not giving them the sophisticated training that when you spell it out the way you just did seems fair to call it a sophisticated training
1: and the police academy is 6 6 months or you're supposed to learn how to drive cars and shoot guns and do everything else and know the penal code and the health and safety code. No, it, it, it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, I really question the wisdom of not requiring some more, much more lengthy higher education before we put a gun on somebody.
0: So what do you think the odds are that we see movement toward what you just proposed, say, in the next six months year five years ten years
1: well i mean i think that's the fifty thousand dollar question you know it's going to be ultimately up to the people that we send to our local city council our state legislature and the national government are they going to really commit themselves to enacting the policies of reform that are being called for and you know, it's it's sort of a, a wait-and-see proposition. Some of the things that frustrate me, you know, I'm a supporter of Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, absolutely. But I was reading in the Los Angeles Times yesterday, um, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles was asked, would she be willing to sit down with LAPD or Jackie Lacey, the district attorney, and have a dialogue? And her response was, I have no interest, absolutely not. I don't want to talk to those folks. You know, and, and when we can't even bring people with various agendas together to try and forge some common ground, you know, I, I think we're not in a very good place at that point. You look at any relationship, whether it's in, in a familial context, whether it's you know between opposing attorneys in my courtroom, you know, if if there is an impasse in dialogue, okay nothing positive happens.
0: I want to get back to this topic we touched on of mandatory sentencing. Can you talk a little bit about what would be required to see significant changes along those lines? Again, to use your word again, mechanisms, are there mechanisms and channels in place where we, where we have hope to see reform? Or is this like, man, we've got to do a whole kind of architectonic shift here if we actually want to see anything done on that front?
1: No, uh, there are, I think, some very helpful signs. Uh, The California state legislature, you know, it used to be mandatory that if you, for instance, discharged a firearm in the commission of an offense, I had to add 20 years to your sentence. That is now discretionary. If you did a prior prison term in state prison for a serious or violent felony, I had to add five years for each separate prison term. That is now discretionary. Our policymakers are understanding that imposing some of these astronomical sentences physically don't make any sense and are ultimately, bottom line, simply not fair. Every single case that comes into my courtroom is different. Every human being that is behind a case number is different. What period of incarceration is necessary for one individual for a particular crime may not be what is called for for someone else. And so... You know, the pendulum swings. We end up in a situation where there's incredible discretion given to the bench officers to uh, impose sentence, and then the state legislature at some point in time said to itself, no, the judges are being way too light on people, and now we have to make everything not discretionary, but mandatory. You know, and that's why it's so ding-dang important that people in the position that I hold are thoughtful and bring to the bench sufficient life experience across the board to impose what is in any particular case a fair sentence. You know, I am, I think, a far better judge because of the 17 years I spent in South Central Los Angeles teaching high school students, completely children of color. The 11 years I dealt first hands with victims of very serious crimes. and now close to 10 years of working with folks on Skid Row. I mean, those life experiences inform my decisions. But if you don't have the breadth of that experience or something that is equally uh, applicable to the job, it worries me.
0: I can only think, I mean, speaking with you, when you are having to make a decision and there maybe are mandatory sentences in place, I can just Imagine you sitting there thinking like, just let me get this person in our running club. (laughs) I I do. It's got to be a weird and tough, I'd say dynamic, because on the one hand, you are tasked by law in some cases for you don't get to there is no wiggle room in some instances. Right. It's a mandatory sentence, but, you know, like, give me give me that person. Let me give me a shot with them.
1: You know, but but Jonathan, I don't want your listeners to be under the impression that I don't think people should be punished. I do. You know, in, in California, you know, robbery, it's two, three or five years. You know, burglary, you've got a triad that ends in a six-year high-term sentence. I don't have a great problem with imposing those type of sentences. Okay. A person needs to be punished when they have violated another person's right their dignity, their health. Where I do have a problem is when you have all the add-ons that take in a you know, a base sentence of, let's say four years and turns it into 30 years.
0: This has been a really good conversation. I'd love to see if there might be some resources that you would want to direct us to. So if people wanted to just get a better handle on either the legal system broadly, or some specific initiatives that you think that we should better understand, are there any books or websites you would direct us to just to become a more informed citizenry?
1: Oh boy. First thing I would suggest is when people get their jury summons, uh, they don't throw it in the trash. You know, And, and the ugly little secret is only about a third of the people who ever get summoned to jury service ever return that jury summons. And so you have two thirds of the population who never get an insider's view as to how a real criminal proceeding plays out. And I find that a person who has jury service under their belt has a much more informed idea on how the process really works. And there's no better way to learn about the system than being an actual participant as a juror. So that is one thing that I would suggest everybody do. There are organizations. The Anti-Recidivist Coalition uh, helps people who are incarcerated once they are out. Local ministries, Catholic Church here in Los Angeles. I know All Saints Episcopal Ministry in Pasadena. If people can contact their own churches or temples or 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 mosques and find out what programs they have that work with people who are coming out of prison Uh, again it's going to open your eyes to who the people are that are beyond the one-dimensional images you see in the arraignment box on the six o'clock news
0: back to the skid row running club what are the best ways for those of us to support the club these days, would that be providing financial support or donations? Would that be different ways to show support? What would be most helpful in your eyes?
1: You know, obviously, if you're in in proximity to Los Angeles, you know, coming down and running with us, regardless of how slow you might be, is terribly affirming to all of our runners. Uh, You know, they, they just love when outside members of the community that, you know, we have people who come who've seen the movie overseas. They're Germans, they're English, they, you know, and they said, you know, when they came to Los Angeles, one of the things they wanted to do is run with us. And that just lets our folks know, man, you're important enough as a human being for me to wanna make this a priority on my vacation, to spend some time with you. I just got a call from an individual who, he owns a bunch of submarine sandwich shops. He says, you know, the next time you guys all run together after a marathon and have a celebration afterwards, let me know. I want to feed you all, you know, but that, of course, requires proximity to Los Angeles, you know. And obviously, if that's not the case and you want to make some of these uh, experiences, the foreign trips, you know, new shoes uh, to run a marathon possible, it takes money.
0: Next time I'm in the L.A. area... If I want to come run with the group, where do I go, what time are we starting, how far are we going?
1: Uh, You're going to go to 6 in San Pedro, the location of the Midnight Mission. You'll see a bunch of runners congregating uh, about 5.30 to 5.45 in the morning outside on the street. And we're going to run five or six miles. If you want a longer run, we do that on the weekends. And on the longer runs, we go anywhere from 10 to 20 miles.
0: And so you're out there with the group. How many days a week are you making it? Three days a week. <laughs> okay. it's pretty good, Judge. <laughs> you know,
1: uh, I get up on, you know, those days at three o'clock in the morning because, you know, it's an early start for me. I, my wife says I should have been a farmer. You know, it's it's nine years running now, and uh, it, it's just fine. You know, it, it is... Jonathan, is one of the most meaningful chapters in my life. You know, my life would be much, much less uh, had this whole thing not come into being.
0: Are there any other specific races on your radar that are kind of on a bucket list for you where you think, man, someday I'd love to... Do this one or that one? Or are you uh, are you pretty happy with your incredible list of international trips that you're going on?
1: Well, I've had the benefit of running New York and Boston and, you know, London. And so I, I've run probably about 50 marathons at this point. I'm still sort of aching to do Chicago. And I'd also really like to take my running club to run New York. So if someone who listens to your program knows somebody... I could help make that happen. There would be 40 folks that would be ecstatic. But, but those are my bucket lists.
0: Now, Judge, what about getting onto some of these, you know, trail races?
1: A lot of our mentors are trail runners. For some reason, that has not gotten into my bloodstream. But our mentors will take a, a good number of our runners on on some of these trail runs. And just so everybody understands, we run you know several half marathons a year we run 3 to 4 marathons a year as a group you know so we do 3 here in a, in, in the Los Angeles area then the one overseas to be real honest you know running four marathons a year you're in training almost 12 months out of
0: the year <laughs> yeah you don't strike me as somebody who's had a whole lot of downtime over the last 64 years is that probably accurate
1: 64-year-old bones at a time complain, but that's all right. I have a hard time sitting still.
0: (laughs) Judge, this has been a real pleasure and an honor, and I am so grateful and thankful for the work you've been doing. I think I get it when you talk about how rewarding that work has been. I do really look forward to someday getting in on on one of these morning runs. So I don't get to L.A. that often. But the next time I do, I'm going to look you guys up.
1: Please do. We run 52 weeks out of the year. So, you know, whenever you're here, you will be very welcomed.
0: Well, listen, I want to let you get back to your day. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. And thank you very much for sharing about the work that you guys are doing. And and thanks, too, for your thoughts on the the justice system. Those are very meaningful things to get to somebody that has your kind of experience and perspective on that.
1: Well, Jonathan, I very much uh, enjoyed the time I've had with
0: you this afternoon. Thank you, Judge, and hope to cross paths soon. Very good. Okay, take care. Well, that's it for this edition of The Blister Podcast. Our thanks again to Judge Mitchell for the conversation. And I want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for handling the remix of this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we hope that you are all doing well. And until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again over here on the blister podcast next week, but you can also catch us tomorrow, Tuesday on off the couch. And then this Thursday on our bikes and big ideas podcast platform. And then of course, Fridays, well, that's gear 30 time. So we'll catch you over on our gear 30 podcast this Friday. And that is all we've got. Thanks everybody.